All right. Good morning, everybody. Open your Bible to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. And uh, while you turn there, um, let me give you a couple of things. One, I just want to say thank you uh, if you came out to the trunk or treat, um, if you helped. Uh, we had so many families show up and so much help. Um, and I especially wanted to thank the um, adult children, empty nester crowd. Um, you guys showed up and helped out with so many different stations and events and games. And uh, I mean, I hesitate to start naming names just because I know I'll miss somebody. Um, but thank you so much for everyone that showed up and worked with food, for building stuff. Um, it was just a fun event for our church family. And then obviously, if you were a family that showed up and got to participate, uh, we're grateful that you came as well. Um, but just a great event, uh, lots of fun fellowship with our church family. And I uh, just wanted to thank you if you showed up early, if you put in some time. Um, I do need to shout out Todd Dixon. I don't know if he's here today. Um, somebody didn't warn him that he was going to be on the bowling station. And uh, he uh, was chasing bowling pins left and right, trying to work the two tables at the same time. And I had to come over and uh, help relieve him a little bit just because that was uh, intense over there. Um, but it was a lot of fun. Um, one other thing, and then uh, Marley or someone will have a slew of announcements uh, before we dismiss later on in the service about membership class and men's lunch and those kind of things. Um, but I did want to let you know, uh, we switched our giving over to our new platform this week. Um, it doesn't mean that your old giving is just going to cut off, um, but we encourage you to switch it. Um, if you're a member here or a regular um, if you've come here from East and you'd like to switch your giving, the easiest way to do that is just to start giving on the new app. Um, all of our QR codes have updated, so they'll take you right to the new giving platform. Um, or you can download the Church Center app and log into our church. Uh, we'd love for you to start giving through there. If you need help with any of that, we can help you. Um, but just wanted to make you aware. And uh, just also wanted to say thank you as your pastor. Um, for those of you that faithfully give, um, we are so grateful um, for the way that the Lord uses your generosity for us to be able to do ministry here. And if you're not giving, I would encourage you um, to follow through with that biblical command. And uh, the amount is totally between you and the Lord. And it's, you know, the New Testament standard is whatever you can give cheerfully in response to the gospel and God's grace. And um, yeah, that's really it. It's not for me as your pastor to know. Um, it's, it's no longer about um, your amount, but it's about your heart. It's what God has always been after. Um, so we would just encourage you um, to jump in the family, um, not just with your attendance, but with your finances and your encouragement and your gifts and all that the Lord's gifted you with. Um, so if you haven't done that, would highly encourage you. Just as we get closer to planting, uh, we're using... Uh, we've been forecasting, but the forecasting just gets more and more important as we get closer to the plant date. Um, so if you're waiting for your sign to like jump in and start giving, this is it. Uh, we'd love for you to start doing that um, as we plan to plant ourselves into our own independent, healthy church. Um, so like I said, the buckets already came by. We're not passing them again. Just wanted to lay that before you. And uh, let's get into the text. Um, if you'll stand, we're going to read Ecclesiastes chapter 7. And my attempt is going to be verses 14 through 29 today to finish out chapter 7. And um, just to give you an update, we are going to um, pause Ecclesiastes when we get to December and do an Advent series through Luke chapter 1. And we'll cover Luke 2 um, on Christmas Eve, which will be a great time together. Um, so just know we're going to put pause on Ecclesiastes after this month. Um, but man, is it so good to be in it. So... Um, let me start reading in verse 14. It says this, In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the, in the day of adversity, consider 
God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. In my vain life, I've seen everything. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in evil doing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that, with not hold your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest your heart, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which is that which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find out? I turn my heart to know and to search out and seek wisdom and to the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness, and I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, as we approach your word, God, I pray that you would just give us humble hearts. God, that we would submit to it. Um, God, we don't stand over your word as the authority. Um, God, we are people that you lead by your word. Um, You tell us your sheep will know the sound of your voice. Um, So God, I pray that you would speak through your word. Um, The spirit that wrote this word, your Holy Spirit, um, is also the spirit that resides in every believer and is also the spirit that can regenerate the heart of the unbeliever. So God, I pray that your word would work its power. Um, God, that we would make much of Christ, that you would use this few minutes to make us more like your son and to advance your kingdom um, in our hearts um, and in this community. Um, So God, we pray that you'd be glorified and that we would be edified and that you would help us get through um, what commentators say is the most confusing passage in Ecclesiastes. So be with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, you can have a seat. Well, if you've been following along, um, we've been walking through this book a verse at a time, and we've used the phrase that Solomon has been keeping us from ditches. Um, and if you're unfamiliar with what we mean by that, I'll explain it in just a minute. But it's, it's almost like we were talking about this this morning in our equip class. Um, but man, humanity is so quick to just go all in on something. We're so quick to take one of God's good gifts and just dive headfirst and make a, a good thing that God created to make it a God thing. To, to find our identity in it, to root our hope in it. Um, it's like the pendulum just swings. And you see this in our society all over the place. Um, you see this in, you know, parenting, and I know people make these broad strokes, but if you think about, you know, the boomer generation and then the helicopter parents, and then the parents that came after the helicopter parents were like, we're just not going to do anything. And then you get the Gen Z parents and they're like, we're going to do everything. And you just see the pendulum kind of swinging. Uh, we see that in politics. Um, we are, our world is so divided politically today that it seems like the, the first day of every new presidency is to just sign umpteen executive orders to undo the last person's presidency. Um, I think our current president like broke a record in the first 
two weeks of office in the amount of executive orders that were signed. Uh, we see this in sports. If a team's not winning, coach isn't doing well. Um, unfortunately, in today's world, a coach gets like half a season to either show results or we're already looking for somebody else. And if they're not doing well, what do we do? We remove the coach and the new guy comes in and says, we're going to do the exact opposite of the guy before me, at least so I can appease the critics and the fans and provide some hope. But just like how we see all of those in our society, we're the same way. We are so quick as humanity to just dive right into something. And Solomon, all throughout this book, has been keeping us from the two ditches. That's, that's been his goal over and over again, is because of our finiteness, we're typically, we're, and Romans 1 talks about this, is we take these created things and we worship the creation rather than the creator. But we're so quick to take a thing like legacy and to try to find all of our hope in it. And Solomon opens the book and it says, don't try to find your hope and your worth in being remembered because you're going to be forgotten. But then just like the pendulum swinging, we would go, okay, well, if I'm not going to be remembered, then I'll just do whatever I want. And Solomon says, no, you don't do that either. What do you do? You fear the Lord and then you pass on things worth passing on. Pass on a legacy of discipleship in your home. Pass on a legacy of faith in your home. And then Solomon just keeps taking us through his adventure through life under this earth, life under the sun, not under the earth, under the sun, taking us through his life and every single thing that we would be tempted to find our worth in, to, rank, to root our identity in, to find our value in, he stops us and he turns to earthly wisdom and he says, don't find your worth in how wise you are on this earth. But then don't let the pendulum swing and you just, well, okay, well, if my worth doesn't come from wisdom, I'll just be foolish. And he says, don't do that either. Fear the Lord and live wisely because it's so much better. And he talks about our money that way. He talks about justice that way. Don't find your worth in your wealth or your job. It's never going to satisfy you. It's never going to give you the identity that you long for. Don't root your hope and your security in your wealth or in your job. But what does he say? We don't fall in the other ditch and just say, well, okay, well, then I'm not going to work. I'm not going to do anything. And Solomon says, then you're not going to eat. What does he say? No, honor the Lord. Fear the Lord. Honor him with your work. We work as if we're working for the Lord and not for men. Build wealth if the Lord allows you to. And enjoy your life, but then rest from your work because it doesn't define you. It just describes you for the season that you exist on the earth. Solomon says the few days of your vain life, your job will describe you. But Solomon says don't ever let it define you. And he just goes on and on and on. Sorry, I'm moving this cord around a little bit. Um, but he goes through your job, your wealth, everything. It will not satisfy. And last week, Chris taught us beautifully and I would just say, if you weren't here last week, you must go listen to the podcast of last week's sermon. It is that good. And I'm not just throwing flattery around. God has gifted this man to preach the word, and we're grateful to have him. And he walked us through verse by verse, um, the first seven verses of Ecclesiastes 7. But he talked about how contentment comes from Christ. Just like Solomon has already told us, that apart from Christ, you will not have enjoyment in this life. That's the end of Ecclesiastes 2. Apart from him, who can have enjoyment? Chris beautifully led us to, apart from Christ, you will have no contentment. But there's contentment in realizing that, hey, my life is fleeting. James calls it a vapor. It's a mist here for a moment and it's gone. That we are here for a short time. That our death is imminent. That it's coming quickly. That I am not promised 40 more years. I'm not promised 40 more minutes. 
And it's, it's not meant to scare you. Okay, so act right and behave and then you'll get... No, that's, that's not his point. It's fear the Lord and enjoy the time that he has, that he's given you. The family, the relationships, the job. Enjoy what the Lord has given you. That contentment comes from fearing the Lord. It comes when we realize that our lives are short, when we don't glamorize the past, when we don't put our hope in the future, but we, rank, or we root our hope in Christ. We keep our eyes fixed on the Lord and realizing that I have all I need in Christ. I have all I need in the gospel. I can be 1,000% content in Christ. That the world promises so much, but the world cannot give me all that I have in Christ. But man, does it try. Your job, your bank account, it will promise you security. But none of it will ever give you the security that you have in Christ. That he's my hope in life and death. And that it doesn't matter what happens to me. That my eternity is secure. Paul says in Philippians 3, I'm a citizen of heaven. That the moment I'm absent from the body, I'm present with the Lord. And Paul says it's far better than life under the sun. Your job can't give you that. It can make you feel a little more comfortable or that you could survive you know, some rough waves in the culture, but it can't give you that. My wealth can't give me that. My circumstances can't give me that. And Solomon says contentment is found in Christ. And today he's gonna talk about righteousness. He's gonna talk about our righteousness here under the sun. And he's gonna protect us from these two ditches. And we read some verses that you're like, wait, is that in the Bible? Like, don't be overly righteous? What is he talking about there? He's gonna protect us from these two ditches and we're gonna walk through it together. So if you're looking with me, look at Ecclesiastes 7, verse 14. He says this, In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider, God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. So Solomon says, hey, if you're living in prosperity, which is many of us, what's the command? Rejoice. Enjoy it. Thank the Lord for it. And don't miss what he roots this command in. It comes from the Lord. Don't believe for a second that your prosperity is all because of you, that you're in control of it. But he says rejoice in it. But then Solomon, he's already told us in chapter three that every single thing that comes in our lives is from the sovereign hand of God. He's made everything beautiful in his time. And Solomon says if you're not living in prosperity, he says realize that it's also from the Lord. And it's pretty cruel if all that we're made for under the sun is just good circumstances and you to live an easy, breezy, happy, healthy, comfortable life. If this was what you were made for, to just have a good life circumstantially down here, it would be pretty cruel for Solomon to say, hey, if you're facing adversity, know it's from the Lord. Why? Because if, if all I'm made for is, is stuff down here, Longer life down here, live you know, a couple more years down here, have easier circumstances down here, and, I, and God sent me adversity? How cruel of him to do that? But what do we have to remember? That we weren't made for life under the sun. You weren't made for this. It's almost as if God created Adam from the dust and breathed life into him, and Adam's just awake. And God says, look around. I've made all of this for you, but be careful. I have not made you for it. I've made you for me. So enjoy all of this. Be fruitful, multiply, have dominion over this, but you weren't made for it. I'm a good God and I've made all of this for you, but I've made you for me. And so much of our lives is we forget that and we think that we were made for things under the sun. 
And how cruel of it, if we're made for things under the sun, if Solomon just says, yeah, hey, that's from the Lord too. The fact that you don't have as much as someone else. The fact that you're facing adversity. But what do we know? That we were made for life above the sun. We were made for God, to know him and enjoy him. And the good thing that Solomon's reminding us is whether you're in prosperity or whether you're in adversity, God can use both to bring us to him. Suffering is a vehicle for our sanctification. God almost always uses our suffering to make us more like his son, to cause us to not put our hope in things in this life, to not put our hope in our health, to not put our hope in circumstances, to not put our hope in money, but to to root our hope and our worth and our identity in him. So Solomon says, both are from the Lord. James tells us to count it all joy when we face trials. Why? Because they're producing something in us. They're producing perseverance in us and steadfastness in us and that those things will have its full effect that we will be perfected, we will be complete, that God's using your suffering to produce something in you. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, he says, we don't lose heart, though outwardly we're wasting away. This world is eating us alive. But what does he say? Inwardly, we're being renewed day by day. So we don't look to the things that are seen. We look to the things that are unseen. We keep our eyes fixed on Christ. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, that God looks at him and says, my grace is sufficient for you. So Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness. Why? Because when I'm weak, when I'm suffering, when I'm struggling in this world, God is made strong. God's power is revealed in my weakness. So Solomon says, regardless of what camp you're in, realize that they are both from the Lord. So he says, fear God. But he says, God's given prosperity to some and adversity to others. And like I said, this isn't a, a, you know, a principle to cause us to go, well, I guess I better act right so that I can have some prosperity. That's not what God's promising. Solomon doesn't give us this principle to scare us. It's not based on your behavior. In fact, the rest of this sermon, Solomon's gonna say it has nothing to do with your earthly righteousness under the sun. Your earthly righteousness is a factor unto your prosperity and your adversity. Don't get me wrong, he's gonna go there. But it's not the main factor. That from him and through him and to him are all things. That everything that happens in my life is from the sovereign will and decree of God. And yes, in God's providence, our actions do matter. Right? That's the other ditch. Well, if God's just sending me everything from his sovereign hand, then I'll just do whatever I want. And Solomon's going to guard us from these two ditches. God's in control. He's sovereign. He decrees it all. But it doesn't mean your actions don't matter. And you just say, well, if God's sovereign, then I'll just live however I want. Solomon's going to say, no, 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 no. That's not the case. So this is what we're going to see as we walk through this text. But his point is fear the Lord and trust God with whatever he's given you. Fear him. Root your identity in him. Find your righteousness in him. Um, It says in Isaiah, I think it's 26, it says, he will keep him in perfect peace. Who's what? Whose mind is stayed on you. Why? Because he trusts you. Because God is an everlasting rock. That regardless of whether you have prosperity or adversity, Solomon's point is keep your mind fixed on the Lord. Keep your identity rooted in Christ and trust him with whatever he gives you. Jesus says, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow has enough worry for itself. He says, look at the birds, look at the lilies. They're not worried about their next meal and how much more important to God are you than they are? He says, don't worry about those things. Trust the Lord that he's a good father and he loves to give good gifts to his 
children. And Solomon says this as he's thinking about righteousness and unrighteousness. He says, verse 15, in my vain life, I've seen everything. He says, there's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in evil doing. And we all know this. I don't know the names that you know, but we all know people who humbly try to walk with the Lord and they die young. And people who don't give a rip about the Lord or fearing him or worshiping him, and they seem to be doing really well. And Solomon says, I see it. And I love how he says, in my vain life. Anytime, it's, I, we should do a, a, a quick study and see how many times Solomon says life every time he, he says it, if the word vain is there before it. Because it, it's almost always, anytime he refers to your life, there's an adjective before it. But he says, in my vain life, I've seen it all. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in evil doing. And he's essentially reiterating the point that your behavior is not the main factor of what you get to experience. God's providence determines all of our circumstances. And we can think about so many people who followed the Lord, who did great things for the kingdom of God and who died young. Martin Luther, the reason that we hold to this doctrine, the reason that the, the, the church came back to this doctrine of we are justified, we're made righteous by faith in Christ alone was because Martin Luther had the guts to go up against the Roman Catholic Church. And he wasn't planning on starting a reformation. He was just holding to and defending the word of God. And it started a reformation. And he died when he was 62. John Calvin died when he was 54. John Allen Shaw died. He was a missionary to an unreached people group. Died at 26 years old. Trying to take the gospel to people that have never heard it before. Jim Elliott trying to reach an unreached people group with the gospel, died at 28 years old with a wife and children, following the Lord, advancing the kingdom of God, living an adventure for God's glory and for people from every tribe and tongue and nation to know him, was speared by a hostile people group who did not know him or his message. And by God's grace, God used even his death to reach this entire people group for the gospel. But we can think of just so many people, one after the other, that were trying to follow the Lord as best they could by his spirit and by his power and died young. And I wrote some names down, but I'm not even gonna mention them, of just evil people in our world and in society that have lived long lives and done great evil in the world. And Solomon says, I've seen it. And the, the point, the reason he brings it up is he's saying that don't think for a second that you can play this game where I'll just play the religious game and just scratch God's back and he'll scratch mine. That my righteousness has everything to do with the, the long life that I get to live and my prosperity here on this earth. Solomon's guarding us from playing that game. But we can also let the pendulum swing. And go, well, if my righteousness doesn't really determine, you know, what ultimately happens to me, then forget righteousness. And he's keeping us from these two ditches to let the pendulum swing. Well, if my behavior is not the main factor, then I'll just throw out my behavior. And Solomon's going to get into his argument in this next verse. Look at verse 16. He says, be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? So what does he mean? By do not be overly righteous. Now, 
This is where we use good hermeneutics. And if you're like, what in the world is hermeneutics? It's just the, the, um, the act or the, the skill of good Bible interpretation. But this is where a good hermeneutical rule of Bible interpretation is if you have a passage that seems confusing or unclear, what do you do? You let the clear passages and unconfusing passages help you interpret the potentially confusing passage. So as we come to this verse and Solomon says, do not be overly righteous, the question we should ask is, is Solomon really saying, like, hey, enjoy your life, just sin a little bit along the way. Don't be too righteous, like have some fun, right? En- enjoy your life. Just make sure you're sinning some. Don't be overly righteous. Sin when you, you know, when you've got a good streak of righteousness going, you, you know, award yourself a sin. He's not saying that. Not at all. What is he referring to there? Um, scripture is clear. Let's use some of the clear passages. First Peter says, the one who called you is holy. So be holy in all of your conduct. Right? It says in John 14, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. He's not referring to perfectly, but the heart of someone who loves Jesus is, no, I want to keep his commandments. I'm not taking a time out or a hall pass or whatever to go on and sin because I've been righteous. First John 3 says, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. And the idea there is unrepentant sinning and unconfessed sinning and intentional sinning says, if you abide, if Christ abides in you and you abide in him, you don't just go on sinning unrepentantly or intentionally. So he's not saying just sin a little bit along the way. What is he referring to? He's referring to self-righteousness. He's referring to your view of yourself. Do not think for a second that you are righteous in and of yourself. Do not start to be overly righteous. He's, he's, it's, it's very much similar to the scribes and the Pharisees. If you had to pick an adjective for the scribes and the Pharisees, it would be overly righteous. They, they were convinced that they were righteous in all of their actions, that they kept the law. You know, the, the lawyer who, who shows up in Luke 10 to try to trip up Jesus, he says, what must I do to be saved? Which is a flawed question in and of itself. There's nothing you can do. And Jesus says, what does the law say? And he quotes Leviticus and Deuteronomy, that I'm supposed to love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love my neighbor as myself. And Jesus says, go do this. And the man says, I have done this. And then to clarify, he says, well, who's my neighbor? So I can make sure that I've actually done this. And then Jesus tells him the story of the Good Samaritan. But this man thought that he had loved the Lord his God with all of his heart and all of his soul and all of his mind and all of his strength. He loved God perfectly 24 hours a day, his whole life, and he loved his neighbor perfectly as he loves himself. Church, I haven't done that for a second that I've existed. I haven't. My heart is so divided all the time. Even those best moments where I'm doing good deeds and I'm preaching or doing, there's always a temptation or a motive in me to get some of the glory for you to worship me instead of Christ, for you to be impressed with me instead of impressed with the finished work of Jesus. There's always, even in my best days, flawed motives because my heart is sinful. There is. And Solomon's saying, don't be overly righteous. And you wanna know how you can tell if you're overly righteous? It's the sins that you don't have patience for. It's the sins in other people that you don't have patience for. If you notice, in the self-righteous, and this is all of us, we, we, we dive into this camp multiple times a day. 
We have so much grace for the sins that we struggle with, right? You find someone else who's struggling with the same sins that you do, there's so much grace. But the sins that you've convinced yourself that you would never do, you have no grace for, right? Oh my gosh, I, would, I can't believe he or she would do that. No excuse for that. Meanwhile, I'm manipulative and selfish and all these other things. That's fine, like, like you can work through that. God's got grace for that. But I can't believe he or she would do that. That they would gamble too much or drink too much or that they would do this or this or that. That's how we know we're self-righteous. It's the sins that you don't have patience for. We often judge people on the sins that we don't think we would ever commit. Think through the last time you've been judgmental towards someone. It's because somewhere in your heart, you started to believe that you would never do that thing. How could they do that thing? And here's what happens. If you haven't picked up on it, my righteousness starts to become the standard by which other people are supposed to live. That's being overly righteous. This idea that I've got it figured out. I've earned it, I've worked for it, and if you could just be like me, if you could just do as well as I am, if you could just walk with the Lord as as good as I am, then you would figure it out too. And the area, as soon as we're not willing to show grace, is the moment we become self-righteous. The moment you're unwilling to show grace to someone else is the moment that you've become self-righteous because you've convinced yourself that you don't need grace. Hey, I've gotten it figured out, I've earned it, they need to figure it out for themselves too. And Solomon says, don't be overly righteous. And one of the other ways we do this is it's kind of the pseudo way, but if, if the Lord has me in a season where he's convicted me of a sin, for some reason I start to think that I'm his conviction police. And because he's convicted me of it, I gotta make sure everybody else is convicted of it too, right? My righteousness is still the standard. Hey, he's really working on this in me, so I'm gonna make sure he starts working on that in all of you. It's being self-righteous. It's being overly righteous. One of the other ways that we can tell if we're self-righteous is what we get angry about. If you get angry to the Lord about a negative circumstance, it's my heart saying, how dare you? After all I've done for you, I've scratched your back. You're not scratching mine. It starts to show that I think I've figured this out, that I don't need his grace. I'm good on my behavior, on my works. Do you see how Solomon's warning is, it will destroy you? It will destroy your relationships if you're self-righteous. If you forget that you are a wretched sinner daily in need of God's grace and the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross and you start thinking you've earned it, it will destroy you the way you view others and it will destroy your relationships. Solomon says, don't think for a second that your prosperity comes from your good works. Do not believe it for a moment. Don't be overly righteous. It will destroy you. Do you see it? Another way, last way, I promise, it's rampant in my life and in our culture. Here I go, being the conviction police. Um, Our lack of gratitude is a sign of self-righteousness. That as soon as I quit being grateful for the gifts that God's given me, It's because I thought that I've earned them. And when I've done something, when I've earned these great gifts, they're not gifts anymore, they're just payments. 
It's God paying me for all the good works that I've done for him. And I'm no longer grateful for him. It's just him giving me what I'm due because I feel like I've earned it. A lack of gratitude towards God shows self-righteousness because we think we've earned the things that he's given us when we don't deserve any of them. We don't deserve them for a second. Everything, we are living in the grace of God. Your next breath is the grace of God. And I don't say that like you should be afraid of God. He, he's good, Christ's work is finished. There's freedom in the gospel. But we can't forget what we deserve. We can't forget that we haven't earned this. And then he says this, before we're tempted to just jump on the other ditch and let the pendulum swing and go, okay, well, if it has nothing to do with my righteousness, then I'll just quit being righteous. Verse 17, be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? Solomon is so blunt, I love it. Don't be foolish. You don't, like, don't go and do something dumb and die, right? Because why? One of the ways that Solomon, that, that, not Solomon, one of the ways that God providentially rules this world is through the cause and effect of our decisions. So he says, don't just go and be foolish. If you drink too much, you will kill your liver and you will die young. That's one of the ways God's providentially governed our world is our decisions have consequences. So we don't just throw out righteousness and go live lives however we want. He says, that's foolish and you'll die early. Don't go do those things. Don't just go live however you like. Don't do it. Don't cheat on your taxes. You're gonna get caught. There's cause and effect. God providentially rules our world through the results of our decisions. Don't just conduct yourself however you want in your marriage. Try it. See how it works. See if that's foolish or if that's wise. See if you end up alone. He says, don't do it. Yes, your righteousness is important. It's not the ultimate factor that, that gives you different things. Like your earthly righteousness gives you nothing when it comes to your relationship with Christ. We have nothing to offer. We have no righteousness to, to earn or to give. The gospel is a free gift of God's grace, but it also doesn't mean that we just go and live however we want. There's so many commands in the scriptures that tell us that we don't just, okay, well, if it's not up to my works and my righteousness, then do they even matter? Scripture overwhelmingly says, yes, your righteousness does matter. It doesn't save you, but it shows that you've been saved. It's the fruit that you have been saved. So he says, don't be overly righteous and self-righteous, but also don't be overly wicked. And then what does he say? Verse 18, here's his conclusion. It's good that you should take hold of this and from that not withhold your hand. So Solomon says, hold on to both. He's referring to what he's just previously said, that in the gospel, I'm not gonna be overly righteous because I know I've done nothing to earn this, but I'm also not gonna be overly wicked because I know that my actions towards my Savior and my Lord do matter, that I wanna represent, I wanna please the, the one who would hang on a cross and bleed out for me. I wanna honor him and love him with my actions. So yes, I don't, hold, I don't let go of being overly righteous. I hold on to that. I'm not gonna to try to do that. I'm gonna remember my, my right place when it comes to my relationship with the Lord. And that's all a free gift of his grace. But I also hold on to the fact that I'm not just gonna go and do whatever I want. That if he would live for me and die for me and bleed for me and breathe his last breath for me, then I'll do whatever he asked me to do. 
if he would give me eternal life where I can be restored to right relationship with God forever, then I'm living my life to know him and please him and serve him. Do you see how Solomon says, hold on to both? And this is what the gospel does. This is why I love the gospel. Because the gospel keeps us from despair, right? That it doesn't matter how much you've sinned. The gospel says that you cannot out sin the cross of Christ. That you do not need to stay in your despair. But it also keeps us from the other ditch where we get really prideful. Because the gospel protects us from that too. Why? We don't have to be in despair, but we can't be proud. Because we've done nothing to earn it. The gospel keeps us right in the middle. I'm not overly righteous and I'm not overly wicked. That I'm a broken sinner, redeemed and saved by the grace of God. The only righteousness I have is his and I'm gonna walk by his spirit and live to know him and please him and enjoy him. You see how it keeps us right in the middle? I don't do whatever I want and I don't convince myself that I've earned it. Solomon says, keep a hand on both. And then he says this, verse 19. Wisdom gives strength to the wise more than 10 rulers who are in a city. And I know I need to move quickly. Um, He says, there's great strength in wisdom. But this line right here is a setup for verse 20. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than 10 rulers who are in a city. And then he says this in verse 20. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. So he said, wisdom is great, but don't think for a second that in your wisdom that you're righteous and that you've never sinned. There's not a single person on earth who's been righteous and who does good and who never sins. Don't think you know it all. Don't think you're without sin. First John says, if we say we have no sin, we're a liar and the truth is not in us. And here's the thing. Mature Christians are not the ones who don't confess. Solomon just says there's no one righteous. Maturity in your Christian life is not the absence of confession. It's actually the quickness of it. Mature Christians aren't the one who just never confess anything. The mature Christians of the room are the ones who confess quickly. Does that make sense? He says there's no one righteous. That as we follow God, as we behold him in his word, as we walk with him and abide in him, and his spirit works in us and convicts us and illumines the truth to us, that I realize, no, that I'm not without sin. Every day I sin on a regular basis. And I don't do it willingly. I don't plan for it. It's just Romans 7. Paul says, the things that I know I need to do, I'm not doing, and the things that I don't want to do, I keep finding myself doing. Oh, wretched man, right, that I am. Who will save me? Christ will. He'll plant his spirit in you. And over time, as you walk with him and behold him in his word, he will conform you to the image of his son. And you will start to overcome sin, not by your power, but by his power and his strength within you. And when sin starts to whisper those lies to you, The truth of God, the Holy Spirit, will bring to remembrance all that God has said to you. And you will replace those lies with the truth of God. Say, hey, that thing that this world is promising me, I already have it in the gospel. The security this temptation is promising me, I already have it. The pleasure that this temptation is promising me, I already have it in Christ. That I don't have to leave the presence of the Lord in all that I have in the gospel. I'm content in Christ. I don't have to turn to those lesser things. You see what he's saying here? Verse 21, do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. And I love this. Somebody memorize Ecclesiastes 7:21. Don't take to heart all the things that people say. If you live for the praises of men, you will die by their criticism. 
Don't be defined by what people say about you, good or bad. This context is righteous or unrighteous. The negative things that people say about you don't define you, the cross does. And the greater warning for us is that as I start following Jesus, the positive things that people say about me, man, that's a drug that gets addicting. Hey, you're a great preacher. Hey, you're good at this. Hey, you're a great pastor. Hey, I, I see your obedience, the, the, the compliments that people give you. You're so generous. You're so kind. You're, and suddenly a great fruit of following Christ becomes something that we choose to, to root our identity in. The praises of men. Look at the scribes and the Pharisees and see the end of the road if we start making the praises of men our God. Praying in the street corners so that people would would hear our prayers and be impressed by our words. Adding things to the law so that people would look at us and go, man, I wish I could be as obedient as you are. Solomon says, don't do it. Verse 23, all this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off. Deep, very deep, who can find it out? And here's what he's saying. All of this I have tested by wisdom. This desire to be righteous, this desire to not be overly wicked. And what has he said? I can't find it. I can't discover it by human wisdom. No human wisdom can make you righteous by your own deeds. You will never be wise enough and never figure it out to where you can just suddenly please God with all your actions. It's not going to come from human wisdom. He says, it is far off. No one can find it out. But keep reading. Solomon says, I tried. Just before you think, well, maybe Solomon couldn't, but I think I can figure this out. Some of you list keepers in the room are like, I think if I had an accurate enough list, I could do it. Look at the Israelites. They had the perfect list without deficiencies, and they could not do it. The problem wasn't the list. The problem was deep within us. The problem wasn't the law. The problem was our hearts. Solomon says, I turned my heart to know and to search out and seek wisdom in the scheme of things. I tried and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness. I tried to understand the the effects of my decisions. I tried to understand wisdom so much that here's how to be righteous and here's how to, to stay away from folly. And he says, I couldn't do it. What did I find? I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters, he who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Now this is where things start to get interesting. Um, Look at seven different commentators and they'll say seven different things. But here's what I would say. I think what Solomon is doing here is he saying, I tried so hard to understand how to be righteous, how not to be wicked, how to do good, how not to do evil things. And here's the one thing that I learned. I am a broken, sinful human. He says, what's worse than learning all of those things? He says, is finding the end of all of those things. Is you trusting in your human wisdom, you trying to figure it out, and you find death. Now here's what... I'm trying to let some of the more clear passages help us interpret this. The context of the book of Proverbs, which was also written by Solomon, is a father writing to his son. And he says, son, you've got two options. Two women are before you that you can choose. You can choose Lady Wisdom, which results in fear of the Lord and walking with him, or you can choose the adulterous woman. 
which is giving in to your desires, giving in to your temptations. This is the life that we have before us. Fear the Lord or choose our own sin. Lady wisdom, which sits at the feet of the Lord and hears his word and clings to it, or the adulterous woman who listens to the whispers of our desires. And I think what Solomon is doing here is he's playing on that language and saying that I found something more bitter than just earthly death. He's saying it's the result. It's this, this life apart from Christ. The woman whose heart is snares and nets. It's giving in to your sin. Whose hands are fetters. Notice what he says. He who pleases God escapes her. But the sinner is taken by her. And then he says this in verse 27. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher. While adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things. I'm still trying. I'm putting all of this together. I'm trying to figure this out which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. He says, one man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I've not found. Now Solomon is not saying that there's one man, he's, he's not saying that man is good and women are bad. He's saying in all the world, one man is not flawed. Man is flawed, woman is flawed, there's no righteous person can be found, but notice what he says. There's one man who can be found. When Solomon wrote the Psalms, Psalms 110, I believe, he's referring to another man. Solomon's writing, he says, someone's gonna make things right. Someone's gonna restore all things to how they were created. And Solomon's looking and he says, it's not me. There is one man who I found. And notice this, verse 29, and we'll, we'll wrap up here. He says, see this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Now, when Solomon says God made man upright, he's not talking about you and me. Scripture is clear that you and I were conceived in sin and we were born in iniquity, as the Psalms say. But what is he talking about here? He's not talking about every man. He's talking about the origin of man. He's talking about Adam. He's going back to the garden. That God made Adam, he made man upright. That God made them upright before the Lord. But what did they do? They sought out many schemes. Adam and Eve were in right standing with God when they were created. They were in right relationship with God. But what did they do? They turned from the goodness of God, they believed the lie of the enemy, and they worshiped lesser things. And before we go and blame Adam and Eve, just like them, we have turned to other schemes. We were not made upright. But boy, have we sought out many schemes. We like to say it around here, we are sinners by nature, but we are also sinners by choice. I have sought out many schemes in my vain life under the sun and turned from the goodness of God. But I love how Solomon ends with there's one man and he calls us back to Genesis. I absolutely love that he does that because the promise of that one man is in Genesis, that there would be a man a singular man. Ecclesiastes 7 verse 20 says, surely there's not a righteous man on the earth and under the sun there's not. But here's the good news of the gospel. There was one righteous man who walked the earth. And it was not you and it was not me. You better believe that. It was Christ. God made himself a man. God took on human flesh and he was a righteous man who walked the earth. And just like Solomon calls us back to Adam, the gospel calls us back to Adam. 
We'll end with this. I'm sorry it's not on the screen. If you have your Bible, flip over to Romans 5. We'll end with this section as we prepare our hearts to praise God for his righteousness. But Solomon puts the ball on the tee, so we have to go there. He calls us back to Adam and Eve, (coughs) and he calls us back to the one man who's made us righteous. And if you're not aware, (coughs) this is the argument in Romans. This is what Paul is saying all throughout the book of Romans, that he says in Romans 1 that the gospel starts with God. Paul says that through God, through creation, we can see God's invisible attributes and his divine power so that no one's without excuse. But what does he say? In our unrighteousness, we've suppressed the truth and we've turned to the creation rather than the creator. Romans 2, Paul says that the Jews and the Gentiles are both unrighteous. He says the Jews could never obey the law. The Gentiles, you weren't, you and I, we didn't have the law according to our Jewish tradition. We weren't born as, as a, in, in Israel, in the Jewish tradition, being taught the law. We now have it on this side of the cross in Scripture. But he's saying, even the Gentiles who weren't held to the law, they're sinners. Why? Because their conscience shows that God's written his law in their hearts. So Jews couldn't obey the law. Us Gentiles, we can't even obey our conscience, much less Scripture. But God's written his law in our hearts, that we know what's evil and what's wrong and what's good and what's right. And we can't even listen to our own conscience to where Paul opens in Romans 3 with there is no one righteous, no, not one, no one seeks God. But what does he give? A promise that there's a righteousness apart from the law of God, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. He says a righteousness that depends on faith. Faith in who? That's Romans 4. Faith. What faith? Paul says Abraham was saved by faith. It's always been by faith. Faith in who? Romans 5. Faith in the better Adam, the one man who came and was righteous. Look with me as we close at Romans 5. We'll start in verse 12. Paul says this, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. What what, uh, Paul is saying there is through Adam came sin, through the one man in the garden that Solomon's talking about who was made upright. Sin entered the world. And he says the law was given later on, but just because the law came later doesn't mean there was not sin. Read through, the law comes in Exodus chapter 20, but read through Genesis 1 through Exodus 19 and tell me there's no sin. Paul says that he died, he died, he died, all the genealogies, he died and he died and he died. He says there's so much sin even though the law didn't exist yet. But he says this, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses. That's the result, that there was sin, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification for if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man Jesus Christ therefore as one trespass led to condemnation for all men so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men
For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Solomon leads us to the hope that yes, your righteousness bears you nothing with God. We we have nothing to bring. Nothing in this world I bring simply to the cross I cling. That we can't bring a single thing. Solomon says it's not our righteousness. It's the one man's. It's Jesus Christ. It's the second Adam who would be tempted in the garden, but he would never sin. He would obey Christ fully. He would withstand the schemes of the enemy. And by his righteousness, we can be made righteous. So what's the application today? Put your faith in Jesus Christ. Find your righteousness in Christ. If you're a believer in the room, fear the Lord. Rejoice in what he's given you. Don't put your hope and don't find your worth in what happens to you in this life. Root your worth and your identity in Christ. Fear the Lord. Confess quickly. Don't believe for a second that you're righteous in your own deeds. The only righteousness that we have the only reason we sing is because I'm a wretch. I cannot save myself. Ephesians 2, I'm dead spiritually. Can't do a thing to save myself. But God has made me alive. For by his grace I've been saved through faith in Christ. It is not of my works so that I cannot boast. My only boast is the righteousness of Christ. Amen? So we rejoice in whatever the Lord's given us. And we plead to the watching world, to the unbelievers in this room, there is righteousness available. You can be made right with God today. Put your faith in Christ today. We would love to talk with you and pray with you and help you do that. Amen? Cling to Christ. Let's sing and let's pray. Father, we love you. God, we're grateful for your word. That as we talk about enjoying this life, Solomon's been leading us in his word to to fear you and to enjoy the gifts that you've given us, God. It would be so tempting for us to start to think that that the things we get to enjoy are because we've somehow earned it. God, we're grateful that Solomon is so quickly to warn us that no, your righteousness, your earthly blessings, all of that is from the Lord. So God, help us to be a people who remember that. God, the one thing that can kill a church is self-righteousness. God, I pray that we would all behold the cross of Christ, that it would keep us from despair, but it would also keep us from self-righteousness. God, that we would be a people who raise our voice to the one who is righteous and to the one who's made us righteous. Thank you for the free gift that we have in your son. It's in Jesus' name we pray.